Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad you have you with us to explore the ideas behind today's headlines. My lift, I cease pollution. Those dirty fuels are burning. The Earth's whole climate's churning. Clean energy solution. My ride, I scans the bill. Fossil fuels are cheap. Wind and solar too steep. Drill, baby, drill. Predefined, misaligned, polarized division. Shuttered mind, worse than blind. 2020 vision. How are you doing today, Dave? The great prediction I made about a Patriots win against the Bills. It was Oof. so close. Yeah. If it hadn't been for those first seven drives, I think the yeah. Patriots would have had a good shot. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. I was thinking it would have been a tie game if we were playing in dog years or something like that. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I've never seen anything like that. I mean, touchdown after touchdown, you can't get back in a game if you can't stop them at least once. So, yeah, that, that, you know, after, having a year really of, of great defense and, you know, Mac being able to at least manage things, a very disappointing conclusion to the season. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think that probably, uh, out, uh, outshines, you know, some of the, the, uh, or out glooms, I should say, you know, some of the good news of the year, I thought Mac Jones played well, but yeah, you know, definitely there, there need to have more playmakers, right? The NFL, you see it in the teams that advanced to the next round they're stacked with playmakers. And I think that, you know, the Patriots have, have done well when they've had those individuals uh, who've been able to, to kind of make the right play, whether that's Brady or Gronk. Um, but uh, the, you can only win so many Super Bowls the way they did against the Rams a couple of years ago. I think that that was the model this year and it's just not the, the way of the NFL in the year 2022. Yeah. I think I have to do some serious looking at some of the free agency moves they made last last year of course they had that crazy day what was it eight signings the same day and kind of mixed results there well there's always next year so there's always next are. year right. yep yeah and i have to report that we did have our our conference uh last week did not get a standing ovation unfortunately mm-hmm. um was not able to come up with my equivalent to bring your pet to class day so mm-hmm. uh you know we'll keep working on it but um, you know, we did get through it. It was, it was an on-time conference. We, we wrapped up mid-afternoon. So I think in that sense, it was a win. That's great. And you're starting back up this week in New York City? Yeah, today was the first day of class. It's the first day of class, a Wednesday, and of course the rest of the week rolling out all the new classes. So, you know, cautiously optimistic that we're going to be able to get going with the, the COVID peak having apparently happened maybe a week ago and, and things improving in the city. Um, so we'll, we'll see how we do, but, but so far it's, it's gone. All right. So we're grateful for that. Yeah. We had a little bit of a wild ride last week, but we're, we're back in business today and, and, uh, doing well and hoping likewise that the thing kind of makes its way through and, and that it's the final wave where everyone's hoping there, that there's no Boy. wave. Yeah. We're ready for that. All right. Well, we begin a new book this week in the politics book five, Dave, want to lead us into that? Yes, so we're halfway through the politics. So there are eight books in the politics. So now we move on to uh, book five. And the subject of book five is revolution uh, and why regimes uh, go from uh, one constitution to a different constitution or 
a change within their constitution or the administration of that constitution. So in good Aristotelian fashion, Aristotle introduces the topic by adding in the different parts of the question that give you a more complete picture of, of what's going on with regime change or revolution. And here, as, as I've done often in assessing whatever we're reading for that week, uh, it's important to mention uh, Plato's Republic and the discussion of regime change in Plato's Republic uh, as a counter, as something that Aristotle is trying to improve upon in his new political science. Uh, note there that in the Republic, regime change works in one direction. Uh, there's a movement uh, from what is best uh, to what is less than good. Uh, you move from the philosophic regime that's created by Socrates, his city and speech. Uh, to a conclusion to the story of regime change that ends in, in tyranny. So from better to worse uh, in one direction. But Aristotle says that revolution occurs in, the, in a very different way. There are different types uh, of revolution and that the modes of destruction of one regime is, are different than the modes of destruction of another regime. So what you have to take on is how many revolutions there are, uh, what nature they are, and what particular states have to be concerned about um, in wanting to maintain themselves. So how do you perpetuate the institutions, uh, your constitution is a question that Aristotle takes up. So he's gonna begin where, he's gonna begin in a familiar place for us. And that place is that there is an absolute standard that really all men turn to, and they just disagree to how that standard is applied in their particular case. Uh, there is what he will call an acknowledgement of justice uh, by all, but there's difference of opinion in how justice is understood because a certain group of individuals understand justice as equality one way uh, and another group understand it as in a different way. Uh, democracies and Democrats, he argues, arise out of the notion that those who are equal in any respect are equal in all respects. Oligarchy and oligarchs believe that if you are unequal in one respect, you are unequal in all respects. So they take the reality that there is such a thing as natural equality to too far or an artificial degree, or they take the reality that there is natural inequality to too far an artificial degree. Aristotle wants to relate to us that, yes, Inequality is, is a true thing, it's, it's natural. Equality is a true thing, it's natural. But you have to take both of these truths, combine them together in how you understand justice. So where, Matt, have you seen this kind of played out in American history where you, know, you have a, a belief that justice amounts to equality taken too far, or on the other end of the spectrum, justice amounts to inequality taken too far? Yeah, well, you can think about a lot of historical instances here. You know, this this whole question of regime preservation was was central to my dissertation um, when I was uh, writing on the the generation between the founders and the Civil War era. And one of the questions that arises naturally as you study that period, the Jacksonian period, is you know what's happened. Uh, it seems like the regime is in decline, and there's something of that that's natural. You know, you can read. Lincoln, for example, on the perpetuation of our institutions and talk about how moving from a founding generation that's, that's tied into the regime, both in terms of their interest as well as uh, their, their views of justice, 
uh, from a generation that, that maybe has different interests uh, leads to a natural distance from those original principles. Uh, but also there's other factors. Uh, there, there's new ways of thinking that, that emerge in the 19th century intellectual landscape. Uh, for example, the idea of utilitarianism, which poses a real challenge to a notion of individual natural rights. Um, and so, you know, I think the Jacksonian period is actually a great period to talk about both of the extremes you're describing there. So one of the democratic elements of that, of that era, which is really um, articulated best by Jackson himself and later successors of Jackson, like a, a Stephen Douglas, is, is the notion that human beings are, are the same um, and, and therefore uh, not only do they have equal natural rights, but, but we ought to do things that, that promote uh, the, the dominance of the majority, that the majority ought to dis- decide not just you know, who holds office, but, but questions of right and wrong. Uh, is slavery right? Well, that's a question for the majority to decide. Is, is slavery wrong? Well, that's a question for the majority to decide. And so you have the democratization of this regime, which absolutizes the power of, of the majority uh, based upon this extension of equality to, to the judgment, uh, the intellect, um, and, and really a, a view of humanity as an almost godlike right to declare that which is just. No absolute standard that we're appealing to, but, but, but man making that standard. Yeah, and that's, that's even present today in, in some discussions. This, this definition of justice as numerical equality, whereby if you see a poll and the poll says 72% of the people believe X, 28% believe Y, then X must be right because 72 of the 100 believed it. They had a numerical superiority over the 28, when in reality, there are a lot of things that the majority gets wrong, right? The majority has to be reasonable in order to be right. It has to be directed by that absolute standard of justice not simply by a count of its numbers. Right. And so then on the other side, go back to the Jacksonian period, and you have the rise uh, under, say, somebody like a John Calhoun uh, of this positive good theory concerning slavery that argues uh, against any kind of human equality, uh, rejects that, in fact, argues that, that inequality, fundamental inequality, racial inequality is, is, is true and ought to be the foundation for political community. And so really both of these extremes you're talking about, and as I teach this, I talk about a, a democratic challenge to the American Republic, and I talk about an oligarchic challenge to the American Republic, uh, very much in the spirit of Aristotle's categories here. So that, that's, that's very much our history. And of course, then you have the small R and capital R Republican alternative embodied by Abraham Lincoln, who wants to recapture the founder's understanding of human equality and and therefore to work out that in uh, the ending of slavery ultimately and and a fuller expression of the principles that follow from that. Uh, But that's that's a challenge uh, in the midst of those who wanna revolutionize the regime in both directions, just as Aristotle is describing here. Yeah, and when you were talking through John Calhoun's uh, positive good theory, you can think about the argument made today by a many an administrator, many many of a, an individual who who leads within the administrative state, that we ought to let the experts decide these matters. That right, that intellectual expertise produces a positive good for the public. Hence, 
take away the public's liberty, to take away their ability to argue that something is is, is good or, or, or bad uh, and just leave it up uh, to, to the experts. So I think it's just, it's interesting that these, these definitions of, of how you can have a um, oligarchic perversion or a democratic perversion to that definition of justice are still you know, present today. So Aristotle very plainly says that, okay, if you're an oligarch and you believe that uh, justice is um, amounts to proportionate equality, then if you see equality taken too far in the opposite direction, you're gonna stir up a revolution. And if you're on the other side, if you're a Democrat and you believe that somehow numerical equality is, is being undermined, you likewise are going to stir up a revolution. So revolution comes uh, from the feeling, uh, the, the sentiment within the few or the many that the other side has distorted the principle of justice to their advantage. So is there anyone in this, um, in this mixture of people who can come to the fore and defend that absolute standard of justice or, or try to make the argument that it could be seen clearly? Well, you mentioned Lincoln's Republican idea that somehow that within Republican government, if you have a notion of the common good that you're trying to draw people toward, even though there may be disagreement of opinion, uh, there is there's usually going to be you know, something there to point to when you judge one argument versus another. But Aristotle says something interesting that I don't know if, if this necessarily applies uh, to our situation today. He writes the following, that the virtuous, those who excel in virtue, have the best right of all to rebel, to want revolution, because no one's really kind of living out this, this abstract uh, standard of justice. For they alone can, with reason, be deemed absolutely unequal. But then he says that they are of all men the least inclined to do so. So the men who most excel in virtue are the least revolutionary. And I, and I think that you could... I remember once when you know, I said, well, well how do you define yourself politically? And you, I think you said, I'm an anti-revolutionary, right? So this is kind of the this, this same argument. And there's some, there's some merit there to being anti-revolutionary. So you just don't want to stir up things to stir up things. But there's another way for the virtuous person to rebel. And that's by the virtuous person simply not participating in the affair itself, just opting out, all right? And... I think when you look at American politics in the 21st century, those who most excel in virtue perhaps are not those most interested in entering the public fray. What do you make of that idea? I think that's a great observation and a great application of what Aristotle is talking about, because you know, we, we don't have um, individuals who are necessarily contemplating revolution and saying, well, you know, I want to hold myself back from that. I don't want to cause trouble. But it, it's more like maybe a personal judgment that look, look politics just isn't uh, the avenue for pursuing the common good and, and the price you have to pay in terms of just the crazy attacks that you and your family will have to bear up under and uh, all those kinds of things as media scrutiny and, and, and just the unreasonable types of standards that are applied to political candidates causes many to withdraw. You know, I, I, I read this in preparation for the show. And I immediately thought of an article that I'd read earlier in the week um, about Dick Morris's prediction that the 2024 election would be between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And I thought, surely someone can save us from that fate, right? <laughs> is, there, is there nobody 
willing to to prevent that on on both sides? Are are there not those you know of, of of stature and prominence you know capable of of being plausible presidential candidates who will will take on Hillary and Donald Trump so that we don't have to do that all over again? Uh, we, we've we've done that once and uh, we, we we've 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 learned hopefully our lesson. But but if if the wise and the virtuous won't step forward if they're overly reticent. And of course, at this point, all we have available to us are those that have already stepped forward to some degree, right? There's, there's no time for, for somebody to emerge um, in the next you know, two years as a plausible candidate who's not already somebody of, of public prominence. But, but of the governors that are out there, the leading senators that are out there, you know, of these folks that are, have the profile, uh, will they just clear the field again and and let Hillary take the nomination as she did in 2016? Or will they clear the field this time for, for Donald Trump? Or, or will they be willing to step forward and, and, and take the shots they're going to have to take in order to hopefully advance some vision of the common good more compelling than that which we would get from those other two candidates? Let's dig a little deeper there. I think that's kind of an interesting question for our audience. Who would those individuals be? I think you know, some time ago uh, after uh, President Trump's election defeat, we went through you know, possible 2024 Republican candidates and, and where they stood. And I think we both agreed that one of the great pitfalls of someone post-Trump is to uh, bend yourself around his will. So not to be your own man, but to, to do whatever he suggests you ought to be doing. So even that first statement of, no, I'm not going to opt out simply because you're running again in 2024 is a, right. is a pretty good first filter and when you look at individuals who have at least kind of signaled that, you've got DeSantis in Florida, Governor DeSantis. I think you have Senator Tom Cotton uh, from Arkansas has, has said that you know he's, he's thinking of running regardless. And then uh, former Secretary of State uh, Mike Pompeo. Uh, Pompeo is an interesting uh, individual. I just uh, I, I think incredibly highly of Larry Arn at Hillsdale College, and he just put out a post about a speech that Pompeo gave at um, at Hillsdale. Uh, but we had seen him in the Republican National Convention in 2020, and he just didn't come off as, as impressive at all. But those are three individuals right there. I think it's much easier uh, for the Democratic field uh, if, if President Biden continues, I, I think, just seem unpresidential or not, not ready to remain as president. You know, you may have Mayor Pete come forward. You, you may have a couple others kind of within the ranks. But that probably, if I'm guessing correctly, wouldn't happen until after the midterm election. So what do you think about this, this dynamic? Who, who might come forward in each party? Yeah, that was, I think, the premise that Dick Morris was working on. And, you know, suppose you have a bad, maybe historically bad midterm election on the Democratic side. Well, that discredits Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, perhaps by extension, or just for their own, her own reasons of, of the kind of questions that have been raised about her over the course of the last year. And so if those are both off the table, then the question is, well, what's the narrative? Right. Is, is the narrative went way too far left? And so Hillary can come in and, and try to reposition herself kind of as Bill Clinton did back in 92, if that's possible, uh, 30 years later as a more moderate, kind of new, new Democrat. You know, is, is that the story? Um, is it just a question of competence? You know, and, and, and there too, Hillary might try to present herself in that light. Others, others that you've mentioned. But I think you're right. I think, I think you know, for the Democratic campaign to get interesting, it really presupposes a very bad result for Democrats in the midterm election. 
and, and some panic that that follows from that. On the Republican side, of course, it's you know any time is a good time for somebody to start at least taking some steps. And you know, Donald Trump had a big rally in Arizona earlier this week, and some have called that kind of a a soft launch for his 2024 campaign. So I think if you're thinking about it, you mentioned several people that that seem to be Mike Pence. You could throw on that list as well. Um, you know, not not too soon to make it clear at least that Donald Trump's decision is not going to determine your decision. I think that, like you said, is a is a first criteria for a plausible candidate to say, you know, I'm I'm, I'm willing to run even against him if if he decides to run. I think another interesting question on this front is, is if that individual comes forward in the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, would they be able to, to practice uh, that virtue, excel in virtue in a campaign so as to make the claim uh, against the perversion of justice, right, against revolution just for the sake right. of revolution, or would they be overwhelmed by the sentiment that propelled uh, each of the the latest Republican and Democratic presidential candidates to, to make their way to the top, it seems the the more outrageous the statement you make, the more likely it is uh, to satisfy your base. Uh, hence, President Biden's speech in Atlanta last week, or, or some of the things that you heard from uh, former President Trump in, in Arizona this past week. So uh, it's 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 really interesting, right? When things are off kilter. You know, who is going to step forward and try to redirect them in the right direction? And I think going back to your statement on the Lincolnian project in the middle of the 19th century, his, his project, right, is, is for to, to win over the administration of the United States. But his, his project is the project of the statesman seeing something out of whack in American politics and, and trying to reorder the regime around founding principles, uh, produce, producing a new birth of freedom or the hope, hope for that. Which brings us to the, the final point that I want to uh, get to in, in covering book five for today. There's a revolution that changes a government, but there are also kind of revolutions within government where you don't change the constitution per se, you just change who's administering the constitution. I think, and this is tied back to this question of whether or not we're going to get real change in 2024. If we go to into 2024 and you just have simply kind of a changing of the guard but you still have some oligarchic elements within that Republican party that, that is leading the country or a continued oligarchic element that's leading um, the country uh, from the Democratic party, then you really haven't arrived at the change that, that you were hoping for. So whatever you're trying to do in 2024, you know, ought to be the pathway to something longer term where hopefully you could get back to kind of lower our Republican uh, government. A lot of people say, well, that's an impossible thing. You know, we've we've gone past that. We're we're we're, we're post-American constitution, post-American republicanism. But I think certainly that would be the the hope to to return to an absolute standard. Yeah, and I think you know there's a great warning here in Aristotle that um, you know regimes tend to collapse under the weight of their injustices. So you know you, you get justice wrong for a time. You can kind of bear up under that, and your regime does its thing, um, and and carries with it the troubles that follow. But but eventually, it, it can't sustain that, and so a regime needs some ultimate correction. And so that can be painful, it can be very painful, or it can be done through reform. You know, you think about. I mean, this 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 week is book ended 
by by a couple of events that are, I think, worth noting here. So, you know, Monday, Martin Luther King Day is a reminder of the possibility of internal reform. King was calling America to live up to the natural law, uh, to live up to our founding principles, right? A, a renewal that worked uh, to a substantial degree and, you know, brought about a uh, hundred years after emancipation, um, the, the final um, securing of, of some fundamental rights, right? For, for you know, the great grandchildren of, of freed slaves. Now, Saturday is the 49th anniversary of Roe versus Wade. And so we think about a new injustice, right? That was introduced or really I should say ratified by, by the court, extended by the court back in 1973. And uh, of course, the possibility that this is the last year that that will be the law of the land. Right? We, we know we've had a Supreme Court case been argued before the court be decided probably uh, this summer. But uh, the, the great injustice of abortion that has been encouraged by the court over this almost half century. And so, so we can see right, even examples of what Aristotle is talking about and, and the possibility of reform but the possibility of the rejection of justice and the consequences that unfold from that as well. Right. And that, that pointing toward renewal of, of both King and, and hopefully uh, if this is the case, that this is the last year of Roe v. Wade, uh, that, that it is possible. And that, that gives us uh, some hope. All right. We're going to wrap up the show by looking at de Tocqueville's crystal ball. So last week we made our wild card picks for the NFL playoffs and both of us got five out of six, right? Uh, we already talked about your miss, uh, the Patriots losing to the Bills, of course. Um, but you did call the 49ers over the Cowboys, much to the dismay of, of probably many of your neighbors uh, there in Texas. But uh, I missed that one. So we were both five out of six. Uh, this week, I think it gets more difficult. So, you know, the, the wild card round, there were some mismatches there and uh, really not that many good games, to be honest. But, but if you look at the matchups for this weekend, they look pretty promising. And, you know, the, the point spreads are pretty narrow. Uh, there's some history. Some of these teams have played before. So we're going to go through these and uh, get your picks, Dave. See what you think as we move toward the conference finals in another week's time. So first on Saturday, over in the AFC, it's Bengals at the Titans. Titans are a three-and-a-half-point favorite. Who do you like in that one? I would have liked the Bengals had they – been able to come out of their uh, victory against the Raiders last week healthy, but uh, they've, they've got a couple of players that they'll be missing uh, on their defense, which I, I think will hurt them. I was really surprised I hadn't seen him play that much this year, but uh, Joe Burrow is just outstanding. He's just a great, great young quarterback. I think um, uh, both he and Herbert and uh, the Chargers are, I mean, maybe two of the best quarterbacks moving forward. But I think this, this, this week, the Titans rested, um, grind the ball, uh, are able to uh, play uh, solid defense, at least. Uh, I don't think this will be a blowout. I don't even know if the Titans will cover the three and a half, but I think that uh, Mike Vrabel's team gets it done and the Titans move on to the championship game. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's going to be a, a relatively narrow Titans victory. I think a three and a half point you know, spread is, is probably pretty good. Uh, you know, 27, 23, I could see that. I could see 27, 24, right? One either side of the, the spread there. But, you know, the Titans have been very tough at home. Um, they, they have a tendency to play down sometimes to their opponents. And so they lost, you know, Houston at home in week 11, but not going to happen this week. You know, they'll be up for the game. And so I, I think they can win. Uh, the Bengals are definitely a team on the rise. 
wouldn't surprise me at all to see them take another step forward next year, but I think it's not quite ready for that next step. So I'm going to take the Titans on the first game on Saturday. Second game is the 49ers coming off that big win over the Cowboys at the Packers. Packers are a six point favorite uh, playing in green Bay. Supposed to be 13 degrees there at game time on Saturday night. The 49ers were one of the best looking teams this past weekend, just their balance on offense. Uh, Jimmy G played well. Uh, Likewise, uh, to the case with the Bengals, though, they came out of there banged up. I don't know if Bose is going to be able to play against the Packers. They would definitely need everyone, I think, uh, to to win that game. This one could get out of control if the Packers get up, you know, early and, and, you know, Jimmy G starts throwing interceptions. So, I'd probably take the Packers and, and give away the six points here. Um, I think this may be the most uh, solid uh, um, a game for one team this weekend. Yep, I'm going to agree with you on that one too. I think Packers are able to take care of the 49ers. I mean, 49ers are going to be able to run the ball probably. And you know, I don't think it's going to be a really a high-scoring game because you know the 49ers can kind of kill the game a little bit that way, keep Rodgers off the field. Uh, but the Packers did beat the 49ers earlier in the season in San Francisco uh, with a big comeback win at the last moment. So, you know, I think, I think they match up okay with the 49ers and with the home field and a healthy rested team, I think they can win by at least a touchdown. All right. So that brings us to Sunday, uh, the early game there also in the NFC Rams at the Buccaneers bucks, three point favorite. Who do you like in that one, Dave? Here's what I'm going to call an upset. I think that the Rams win this game. I think they play great defense. They drop back seven. They they rush four. You know the Aaron Donald types. Uh, they've got a lot of talent, a lot of star power on their team. Uh, so I think they match up really well uh, against the Bucks. I, I think they'll, they'll hold them to 17 points or so. And I think that uh, Stafford will do enough uh, to win the game and. And this will be the end of uh, Tom Brady's run this year. I don't know if it'll be the end of his career, but, but definitely the the end of the run this year. So I'm taking the Rams. Okay. I'm going to take the Bucks. So I, I, I hear all what you're saying. Uh, you know, historically, we know Brady's had his toughest time against those defenses that can put pressure on and drop guys back into coverage. So if you can put pressure on Brady with four and have seven in coverage, that's a formula for success against him. And of course, it doesn't help that, He's missing a couple of his top receivers. So I, I can certainly see that playing out. Um, you know, the question is how many points can the Bucs score? So the, the Rams this year, it's very predictable. Uh, if they hold their opponent to 24 points or fewer, they're 13 or no. If they give up more than 24 points, they're 0 and 5. So that's 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 the line right there. Now you look at the Bucs at home this year, they've scored 30 or more points, eight of nine games. Uh, so that's been the pattern. They've, they've scored well at home, but the one they didn't was the goose egg against the saints. So that's definitely the model of course, for the Rams. I think the bucks do win this. I think it's going to be, uh, you know, a 30 to, to 24 kind of game uh, entertaining, but I think Brady is able to squeeze at least one more week out of this season. All right. Last of all, we've got the bills at the chiefs chiefs, one and a half point favorites. And uh, what really could be the, the matchup of the week on paper, at least. Yeah, watching both these teams last week, uh, was just, I mean, they were just incredible on offense. And I think that in many ways, I'd take this game as a Super Bowl. I just did it, it has yeah. all of that kind of fun element to it. Two great quarterbacks, uh, both teams loaded with weapons. Um, I think that, um, you know, in something like this, 
you've, you've got to be aggressive because you know you're going to have to score 35 points to win the game, 38 points, but not aggressive to the point where you're throwing interceptions or turning uh, the ball over. Uh, I don't have a read on this game other than I think that it's just the Bills' time. They, they lost last year to the Chiefs, and, and I could see them uh, just uh, winning this one in a, uh, in a shootout. So I, I'm going to go with the Bills uh, and, and uh, take the one-and-a-half points, but I'm looking forward to this game more than any other this weekend. I'm going to take the Bills as well. I, you know, they beat the Chiefs earlier in the season. Of course, that was week five, and that was during the period where the Chiefs were having their struggles. Uh, it was 38-20. to 20. But four Chiefs turnovers, and they've struggled with turnovers all year. Mahomes, interceptions, and in that game, there were two fumbles as well. So I, I think, you know, Bills have the number one defense in the NFL. They, they know how to force turnovers. I think if they can get up early, like you're saying, put some pressure on the Chiefs, that might create some more turnovers. Mahomes is not going to be shut down. Um, but, but if you can turn the ball over a few times and you can come back and, and score in response to that, you can get enough of a lead to hold on probably with the late comeback. So I think that's, that's what I'm going to call for. A narrow Bills victory, an early lead for the Bills. Good Chiefs comeback, but it falls just short. Well, my picks leave us open for a, a Bills-Rams Super Bowl, which we predicted earlier in the season. So hopefully – uh, that'll that'll be the case. Uh, although I, I would love to see the Bills Bucks, um, uh, that'd be an amazing Super Bowl, given Brady's track record against the Bills and <laughs> yeah, and and the fact that Gronk is there and it'd be like the Patriots playing the the Bills in the Super Bowl. So right, yeah, a lot of good narratives from this point forward. Well, we'll see how we do with our picks, and we'll look forward to being back with you next week. Thank you as always for listening. Please remember to subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. You can always reach us at democracyinamericatoday at gmail.com, and we'll talk to you soon.